0: Hello. What's your point?
1: You know, I would be remiss if I didn't mention Garnett, the important role that you are playing on WPKN in
0: not simply independent journalism but making sure voices get out. The reality is that as
1: we talk about social media and activism and, and hashtags, conversation, like deep dialogue about these issues is really what we're going to need if we're going to ever get to that point of reimagination. So I just wanted to, to thank you. You know, We've got a list for the revolution, um, and that revolution really is going to uh, have to be one that allows us to, to conquer these inequalities and move forward as, as, a, as a nation as a whole, but also as a community united.
0: Okay, thank you so much. believe dialogue is very important for the continuation and maintenance of a democracy. One should be tolerant of all views different to yours. It is much better to use words to settle differences than with weapons. You see, weapons destroy human beings. When all these differing Views are put together, a consensus should be found to move the nation forward together for one common cause. At the end of an argument, we may disagree but not become disagreeable. KN Radio. My thought for today goes as follows. History will judge us not by what we say in this moment in time, but by what we do next to lift the lives of our countrymen and women. Uh, That quote was by Ellen Johnson Sirleaf, former president of the West African nation of Liberia. Johnson Sirleaf served as the first woman to be elected head of state of an African country between 2006 and 2018. She also was one of three women who in 2011 won the Nobel Peace Prize for the efforts to further women's rights. Today on the show we feature a young lady working wonders in the Hartford community and its environs on this the 14th day of women's history month 2021 my guest Kenyatta Thompson community organizer uh, with the the Cartel Center for Health Equity and Justice with locations at 147 Prince Street Brooklyn New York uh, 3 7 or 315 Sheridan Avenue, in Albany, New York, New York State, and uh, 65 Hungerford Street in Hartford, Connecticut. On the show this morning, our conversation uh, centers around structural racism in the United States, uh, whether it's a fact or a fiction. My aforementioned live institute guest holds a Bachelor of Science degree from juniata college let's hope i pronounced that right juniata college in huntington uh, pennsylvania and a master's degree in social work from the university of connecticut uh, school of social work hartford connecticut kenyatta thompson i'm so delighted to have you on the show this morning welcome to good morning
1: i'm really happy to be here thank you for
0: the invite Uh, good happy you're here as well and um As a student of history, it would have been remiss of me not to, you know, start off by asking you about your first name and uh, how you came by the name Kenyatta.
1: Right. So that's a really great question. I get that almost every single day. My parents named me after Jomo Kenyatta, the first president of Kenya, a remarkable man. And. It's sometimes a little hard to live up to that legacy, but I'm doing what I can.
0: Yes, and uh, I noticed your line of work tells me that they may have known that you're going to become a community organizer, you know, and fight for justice and fair play like Jomo did in Kenya. Delivering the country's independence as the first prime minister, then became the first president. That kind of thing in 1963, and currently his son Uhuru Kenyatta is the president of, of the nation. Correct. So, um, so it's 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 nice. I mean, you seem to be living up to the name because I, I know by you know your bio your biography that you are maybe just like me who try to strive and fight for equal rights and justice for people, which is I think. A great thing that we're not doing as a people today in this society.
1: And I I think it's absolutely necessary as a black person, as a person of color, it's hard to ignore the injustices that are happening. I really enjoyed the quote that you said beforehand, and it reminded me of one of the tenets of the National Association of Black Social Workers Code of Ethics that basically states any black person today alive who cares about their people cannot ignore these injustices.
0: Indeed. And um, uh, for your undergraduate degree, um, I'm not quite sure. What what is it in, if you don't mind telling me?
1: Yes, I have my undergrad in psychology, and you pronounced it correct, Juniata College. Okay, thanks. Small town, Pennsylvania.
0: Okay, yes. I I think Juniata is also the county, a county in in, in Pennsylvania as well?
1: I believe it's in a county. We were in Huntingdon County, Uh which... We were known not for the most positive things, but the college.
0: Okay. How long in terms of years have you been a community organizer?
1: I've actually been a community organizer for the last few months, uh, almost 10 months, I think right now. And I started working with Catal around that time, 10 months ago. And like you stated, we're a community-based organization. And just to give a little further background, we are devoted to enhancing the leadership of community residents so that they can fight mm. for the issues that they care mm. for and organize it amongst themselves okay. so that they can actually enact those issues.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask that question later, and uh, I may ask again, <laughs> and you may broaden the, the, the answer, so to speak. Okay, um, what did you say Inspire you to become a, a community organizer?
1: I don't think I have a word or a specific time that made me want to become a community organizer, like I said, it's it's hard to be a Black person and not advocate for the issues that you care about. But uh-huh. the thing that initially, I would say, kept me in this, what kept me in being an organizer, is watching the members of our organization really take ownership and fight back and feel as though they have power. Organizers, that's what we do. We build power amongst community residents, and especially as a Black person, a person... From the African diaspora, a lot of times we don't feel as though we have that power. And we do.
0: Okay. And um, a reminder you're in tune to WPK and radio. The show is What's Your Point? Kenyatta Thompson, a uh, community organization, organizer with Cattell Center, is my live institute, I guess. And um, do you have political aspirations? And no, usually, uh, community organizers usually veer off into politics later Uh, uh, do you have that um, aspiration for one day becoming a politician or a leading politician of the day
1: surprisingly no i think i get that question a lot whether or not i would become a politician but it is not on my radar i'm i'm more about building up our community and maybe some other folks can be the politicians okay
0: all right um we we are surrounding the question of structural racism in the United States today, fact or fiction. And um, what is structural racism?
1: What is structural racism? That is a very hard question to answer in 30 seconds. But structural racism is, I think we have to start with what is racism, which gets misconstrued all the time. Racism is prejudice plus power. The power that one has over another group specifically a group of individuals from a particular race or background. And race is a whole other question in and of itself. But structural racism is essentially taking the power that you have and creating these institutions where racism is embedded in those institutions and it makes it difficult for an individual or a member of that race to basically live their daily lives without feeling the structural oppression without feeling structural racism and the power piece is key i think often folks who don't understand racism will often conflate racism and prejudice to say that they're the two things but they are not the same one can be prejudice against someone but if you don't have the power to enact anything different if you don't have the power to keep that person down that is not racism that's prejudice racism is this really insidious and structural racism is this really insidious thing that seeps its way into basically every form of our society
0: so you're saying that a black person in this country cannot be racist they can be prejudiced but not racist because they lack the power to do so
1: yes they lack the power that folks of other races have because of how we have designed our world
0: so when you hear someone out oh, there says a black person is racist, they don't really know what they're saying. That's fodder. Correct. Okay. So that black person may be prejudiced against white people, but not racist. Correct. Okay. All right. So, um, you know, I get that all the time. People say, oh, you're racist. And even black people say that, you know, say it too. So, um, oh, have you seen working in your field, not necessarily this one, but previously, have you seen any evidence of structural racism?
1: You see it all the time. One of the things that prior to coming to Catal, I was a workforce developer and I would help individuals who had been previously incarcerated seek employment. And one of the biggest evidences of structural racism I would see is our young people would apply for jobs and simply because of their name, their application wouldn't have been looked at. I myself use my name, Kenyatta Thompson. It's really hard to think that I'm anything but a black woman or a black person because Kenyatta is a unisex name. but a lot of the times I would see applicants that I would or people that I would work with, their applications wouldn't be heard. Or even myself, I'd apply for certain jobs and would not get a call back. And I would change my name to Kay Thompson, which is much more neutral, and I would get a call back.
0: Okay, so it's, uh, it pervades the entire society. Uh, you have done prison suicide uh, work um, in the past. Briefly, sp- briefly speak about on that for, for us. Let us understand what you do what you did then?
1: So a few years ago, I was an intern at the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention in Washington, D.C., and I was a public policy associate. It was a great internship, but what I did was, I remember day one of the internship, we had to pick a topic to research and do work on and then present at our public policy council, and something in me decided to work on prison suicide prevention strategies. So What I did was look up national prison suicide prevention strategies, look at whether or not those strategies were effective, what spurred those strategies on, what were the rates of suicide across the country, and then even hyper-localized in certain uh, states or even municipalities, what those rates of suicide were, and then essentially present my findings on what should change, what is working, what isn't working, what are the national trends, and where America is going around suicide prevention for people who are incarcerated.
0: Uh, During that stint, are you able to say in terms of percentage race, in terms of these people are more inclined to be a victim of suicide, or um whether it was more black people or less, that kind of thing. Are you able to to say the the number?
1: I can speak a little bit to that. Like I said, it was a few years ago and I Uh think it was 2013, but at the time, individuals who were incarcerated and not just prison, I will clarify because a lot of my work also um, went into jails as well, which are a little different. Um, But... For people who are incarcerated, the rates of suicide back in 2011, which was where the data was coming from, were higher than the national average. The rates at the time were about 11 per 100,000 for people who are incarcerated versus 12 for um, for every 100,000. And as I was going through my notes this morning and over the last week to prepare for this, what I found at the time was it was most of the time people who were incarcerated in jails who actually took their life at higher rates. And similar to national trends, the m- majority of them were white middle-class men.
0: So, okay, majority. So um, so black would be in the minority along with Hispanics and so
1: forth? Right. At the time, there weren't that many incarcerated people who were um, African-American, Latino, who were taking their lives. But my research found that it was mostly um, white middle-class men. However, like... Something to really point out and not to just share this name without, you know, I will share this name and I recognize there's pain attached to it. So I just want to honor that pain. But during the time was when Khalif Browder had actually gotten released from prison and I think shortly thereafter had taken his own life, which I think just high released from jail, which highlights the fact that a lot of folks, again, are who were at the time taking their lives, were incarcerated in jail. And when you just think around the politics and what jail is, jail is when a person is not convicted of a crime. So the fact that individuals are just being housed in jail and they were taking their lives more so than people who were even in prison, who were, you know, incarcerated for a long period of time or for however period of time, it's just, it's awful to to think about. So in terms
0: of the number who um, they, they would have contemplated but not carried it out in terms of race what would you say the breakdown is in terms of race would you be able to remember
1: can't really speak to the breakdown of race because Uh one of the things that i found in doing this research is that data isn't readily available Uh it was a lot of me calling states trying to get that information Uh from them and even when i would talk to the folks who answered the phone in Uh ohio or in pennsylvania or in colorado they weren't readily They weren't going to give me that information readily. It was always we have to talk to our lawyers, which I think underscored the fact that or highlighted the fact that there wasn't much thought at the time to prison or jail suicide prevention strategies. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a bigger issue of how we view people who are incarcerated. We don't, as a society, we don't put as much effort into people who are incarcerated. We just toss them into this bucket, which is embarrassing which is horrible to think about
0: so what what do you think society should do in terms of politicians to to lessen the the, the burden of suicide cases in prison What, what do you think
1: so that's a another bigger question i think in terms of what we can do to help people who are struggling with suicide in general not just while people are incarcerated but in general i don't think i don't think that enough attention is given to people who struggle with suicide. And again, this is from a previous life, so I'm speaking um, on things that I've done previously, but we just need to do a lot more. And there are some practical things that people can do for folks who are incarcerated, for instance, increasing the number of increasing the time that folks are monitored while they are incarcerated, I know in one case in particular when I was researching Ohio and Ohio prisons and jails, um, there was also an infamous case at the time, I believe it was Ariel Castro in Ohio who had taken his own life, and there's a lot surrounding that. But one of the issues was the, halt, the correctional officers were supposed to rotate every 15 minutes, and they found that in the prison in general, they weren't doing that. And so they were only going by once an hour, which is not what you should be doing if somebody is on suicide watch and you have these policies and procedures in place. So there are some practical things like how often you monitor a person, what mental health resources are available in prison or in jail, what other types of resources. But so, yes, there are practical things, but there are just a lot that we could do as a society in whole to help people who are struggling with suicide.
0: So just name a few things that you think could be done to maybe lessen the incidence of suicides in prison as well as in the streets, at people's homes, places of work, that kind of thing?
1: I think the number one thing that I would suggest is community, building community. When people don't have those community connections, it's a lot easier for them to slip through the cracks And there are tons of resources, even as recent as um, a few years ago, I was an intern at the Connecticut Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, where I worked on suicide prevention strategies. There are a ton of resources that I can think of off the top of my head, like strengthening community ties, strengthening the person's connection to mental health providers, opening access to mental health providers. It's one thing to say, oh, go and see a therapist. But it's another thing when you don't have health insurance because of how the state is the state operates. Or it's another thing when you are a black person and the only you know, providers you see are people who are not of the same race and maybe you feel as though they can't relate and you don't know what your options are or just even pure access. Maybe you do have health insurance, but your copay is $40 a month and you can't go and afford to see that. So there are a number of things that we can do. And like I said, there are a number of different organizations that do that work, um, whether it's where I used to intern before AFSP or whether it's even hyper locally in Connecticut, looking at the um DEMIS, Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Mm. Acronym looking at DEMIS and what resources they have available.
0: So um, are you able to recall the main cause of suicide uh, for those who contemplated it in the system that you worked previously? Are you able to recall, to say, okay, the main cause would be X?
1: So there usually isn't any main cause. Mm -hmm. What makes a person um, contemplate even taking their own life. There are usually a series of factors and it's it's difficult to figure out because you don't have the person alive to say, hey, No, what I'm, were
0: the- I'm talking about those not who, who have died, but those who contemplated and they were caught, you know, ah. and um, resuscitated or, you know, that kind of thing.
1: A lot of it, folks were struggling with mental health and they didn't have a place to go to, or they didn't have adequate resources in their area. A lot of times, people have cited financial reasons. Um, a lot of times, people have had terminal illnesses and felt as though there was no other option until they were, like you said, caught in the safety net and were able to explore those other options. So, there's never usually one main cause, it's usually a combination of different things
0: and uh we are listening to w p k n the show is what's your point uh kenyatta thompson community organization organizer organizer with uh, the the center uh, is my uh live institute i guess and uh, i am Garnet ankle and uh, uh the prison situation uh, what are your opinion what is your opinion about um for profit prison do you think it should be Abolished in this country. What are your thoughts?
1: Prisons in general aren't great, and I think for-profit prisons are just some of the most deplorable uh, just institutions we have to to make money and make the amount of money that prisons make off of an individual is is not okay. Um, like I said, I've because Catal is a member-based organization, I'll talk to some of our members who have been in either jail or prison and. Just you would think about all the money that people make that even basic things like the quality of food or the quality of uh, care, even for women, the amount of or folks who need the amount of menstruation products that are available. It's just it's not what you would think it would be for an institution that's making that amount of money. So I don't believe for profit prisons should exist.
0: And um, so you think the prison system should be controlled by government?
1: I don't know if I have an answer to what should be done in terms of what new era we should enter into in terms of prisons. I think that is, like I said, a com- a conversation that needs to happen amongst people. And t- I think that's a conversation that needs to be had. But I don't have an answer to that in particular.
0: OK. And uh, you've worked w- uh, with formerly incarcerated youth and, uh, at the Roka Incorporated in Springfield, Massachusetts. Uh, Briefly tell off the work in terms of getting those clients ready for work and the recidivism rate you experienced while working there.
1: Right, so I worked with mostly young men towards the uh, last year that I worked there. We had young women who had entered the program, but I would usually work with young men between the ages of 17 and 24, or they could be as old as 28 because it's a four-year program. So if you had someone who entered at 24, they could be 28. But my um, work with young men and preparing them for seeking jobs, it was it was a myriad of different things depending on where the person was because we take in each individual into account. So. Some folks came out and they were, I know exactly what I want to do. I took classes while I was inside or I was doing this in this field before I went in. So let me go. And then with some folks, it was, you have to go back, back, back. Because once again, our, we don't, especially in prison or jail, there wasn't enough programs or there wasn't enough preparation being done. So now a person gets out and they have to worry about their ID, their birth certificate, which you need before you can even apply to a job, social security card. So... A lot of the times I could work with some folks on maybe the later stuff, like we're going to immediately start doing mock interviews and sending your um, resume out and start doing hitting the ground. And then with some folks, it would be we have to take the back step and get you the ID, the birth certificate, the social security card or other things. Um, It yeah, it was a lot to do.
0: So in terms of those Returning to the system after getting out, what would you say the rate was? And is of a race factor to say, OK, more white people or less? What, what, what took place there?
1: Right. So thank you for reminding me about that part. Um, so we at ROCA at the time had also a work program. So our rates of recidivism, I believe, if they were able to complete the work program, which was a full time job and it gave them access to Um, It gave them, you know, money, it was a job, you got job training. I think the recidivism rate, if folks were able to complete the program was, or the work component of the program was around 85% didn't recidivate at the time. Don't quote me on that, but that was when I used to work there. Um, But outside of that, just looking at the program in general, the recidivism rate wasn't that high as long as we were able to connect young people to both long-term employment and then other factors like long-term housing.
0: So, so go ahead.
1: And what I want to add on is it's similar to what we were saying before in terms of we need to take care of our people more and we need to ensure that everyone has that equal chance because if you get somebody who just came home after doing four years, whether it was, well, have to be... um have to be a prison. But if someone came home after four years and they're looking for work, they held a job while they were inside or they did, you know, a number of programs inside and they're able to, you know, sustain employment while they were inside, you transfer that back into the outside and then you have employers shutting the door on them. They can't get access to stable housing. What's left? the person is naturally going to recidivate, if not anything by just a mere violation of probation mm. because if one of your stipulations, if you got out on your own probation, is to get a job, and then all the jobs are closing their doors, and you, that in and of itself is a means to have somebody recidivate and go back into the system, which is just, once again, deplorable.
0: So what was ROCA? Was, par- was it an organization working in conjunction with the prison system In Springfield, Massachusetts, or it was a prison itself? What is Roka Incorporated?
1: No, it did neither of those things. It was a nonprofit agency that just worked with young people who wanted to do something different and wanted, if you needed a job and you wanted to go through the job training program, you could do this. If maybe you didn't need the job, but you wanted to enter this program and, you know, get your high set, which is AKA GED, it's another GED program in Massachusetts where I used to live. Um, you could go through the program and do that, but it wasn't a program that was a prison itself or working as part of the prison. No.
0: So these people would have already been outside the prison system in order to be a part of this, okay?
1: Correct. So you had to have been formerly incarcerated to mm-hmm. be a part, and there were very few who were on work release meaning that they were and i can't remember what it's called again this is previous life but mm-hmm. when they were about to come home and they were it was on the gradual program we could have some young men at the time um be on that program but for the most part and that was very few i can think of maybe five young men throughout my entire four years working there who did that so mm-hmm. all of the young men that worked with us were formerly incarcerated
0: so, uh, I know it's a while ago. Are you able to recall the recidivism rate in terms of black or white, you know, which were higher? Because I'm always interested in, in seeing race. that. Yes.
1: So, we worked with mostly African-American Latinos, okay. so I can't speak to uh, okay. the recidivism of, of white young men who worked with us. Um, I would have to ballpark it. Okay. I would say... of. Uh, and it would probably be very similar because we had a higher population at some point when I was working there of um, Latino young men. But it was, I would say, ballpark at around 80%. Most of our young men at the time did not recidivate. As long as they were able to get those things, like I mentioned, okay. stable housing, they were able to seek, you know, long-term employment and things like that.
0: Okay, you're in touch with WPKN. The show is uh, What's Your Point? Uh, my live in studio guest is... Kenyatta Thompson, community organizer with the Qatar Center. And, uh, okay, currently you work with Qatar and the Qatar Center for Health, Equity and Justice. I guess you're in the the Hungerford Avenue office in Hartford. Okay, what is the mission and purpose of Qatar?
1: Qatar's main mission, and I remember I mentioned it earlier, so I'll repeat. Uh Um, Qatar, we are an organization that seeks to strengthen community ties and build the leadership of community residents so that they can do the advocating for themselves. Um, We do have three overarching visions that we seek for. One is ending mass incarceration, mass criminalization and the war on drugs. Um, One is making it so that we build the leadership of directly impacted people and folks who are on the ground and care about you know their communities um, and our third goal is to basically strengthen organizing capacity amongst those members so that they can do it in conjunction with other community members
0: Okay, so in a nutshell that's what you do it's a mission and purpose yep okay um, the war on drugs what, what, what do you mean by war on drugs this they've been raging a war on drugs for the last I think maybe 40 50 years now and um, they're failing
1: yeah I for those in studio I'm just rolling my eyes a little bit but yes so the war on drugs where we essentially have criminalized people who use drugs and those in their communities you saw it back in the 80s and 90s where anybody who was using crack cocaine just got swept up and were doing really long sentences versus folks who use the same drug but it was cocaine um didn't get those same amount of sentences. Um, And you see it today where even still we criminalize people who use drugs. And let's be, let's be very specific. We criminalize people who use heroin at really high rates. And we're even seeing it more where now you have fentanyl and something. And that person who was using fentanyl or maybe dealt fentanyl now is getting astronomically high rates in terms of number of years incarcerated, the sentence that they're getting. So a lot of our community has just been damaged by the war on drugs. And when I say our community, I say the black community. The black community. I also have to extend it to all people of color because a lot of times we all get swept up in that. And so our communities have just been so damaged. And we do need to heal from that and end the war on drugs. Even if it's, even if on paper it may say that it is not still raging, we're still feeling the after effects of it and we're still feeling. Pieces of that.
0: So, in addition to the Black community, we're talking too about the LGBT community as well as the uh, the Latina community. Huh?
1: Yes, we can also include LGBT as a queer Black woman. Like this is, I see this in my community in terms of the LGBT community as as well.
0: Indeed. Yes. So, what do you think? The, they're failing the war on drugs.
1: I think the war on drugs is working in the way that it was designed to work, which is to criminalize people. And so it is up to us as people who are affected by it Mm -hmm. um, to put an end to this criminalization of people who use drugs.
0: Yes, and this thing about war. Maybe you should find another term about war and drugs. I think there should be another term. Yes, so uh, what you were saying earlier is that the, 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 uh, the criminalization for people with drugs, it was mainly... Disproportionate for black people, black and other minority people. Is that what you're saying? It
1: absolutely was. Okay.
0: And still is.
1: Yeah, you can... We are over-surveilled by police. Mm -hmm. We are arrested at higher rates, even if those arrests don't result in a bust in terms of finding a specific drug Mm -hmm. or Mm -hmm. finding what people, you know, are doing this myth of people who use drugs and, and how we criminalize black people. Um, so we're on Hungerford Street. I can't tell you mm-hmm. how often in Hartford do the cops just patrol the, the street mm-hmm. just because we're in Frog Hollow and just because we are surrounded by Latinos and black people. And it's the same no matter where I go throughout the state. It's Hungerford and Hartford. It's Albany Avenue and Hartford. It's Dixwell Avenue and New Haven. No.
0: So it's a community itself. It's because it's one of the more, who do you say, maybe, um, depressed community? Is that Angleford Street? It? Is
1: well, it's I would say it is a community that is highly stigmatized. And yes, it's full of a bunch of uh, black and brown folk who maybe not ha- don't have as much money as the folks further down on Capitol Avenue do.
0: Okay. What is a typical day for you as a community organizer with the organization Qatar?
1: A typical day for me is... Working and working with our members, meeting one-on-one with individuals and focusing on the issues they care about. Like I said, a lot of our work is to de- develop the leadership of people because a lot of times they don't feel like they have power. They don't feel like they have the confidence to to take on institutions or to challenge things. So my day could be starting in the morning from meeting with some of our members or doing, we call them one-on-ones, individual meetings with people just to understand where their interests lie and in the afternoon, it could be a combination of doing outreach, whether that's flying, whether that's um, literally handing out flyers in the street, very glamorous, um, or meeting people where they are in their community because people aren't going to come to you. Like I have, people aren't going to come to me. I have to go to people. I have mm-hmm. to meet people where they are in their communities. Whether it's that community is meeting them at the library or meeting them, you know, down the street. And it could conclude with our members meeting and. Finally, at the end of the day, deciding what steps they're going to take, whether that's doing more research on a thing, whether that is doing more flyering and more outreach in a specific neighborhood or in a specific area to find other people who are interested in it. Or it could be just taking action on some of the issues that they care about.
0: OK, so uh, you, your organization is a 501c4 social welfare organization. So how are you funded?
1: That is a question for the higher ups. <laughs> I'm just the community organizer.
0: You're not able to say, it, but um, but you're not you're, you're exempt from income tax, the kind of thing. But um, you're not quite sure. All the funds come in to the organizer. That's fine. Okay. Um, another thing we talked about structural racism earlier on, but have you observed it currently? Not say among workers, but when you go out to to do your job on the street or when Uh, Do you find that still, you see that existing?
1: Absolutely. And I'll even just give one prime example of structural racism. So our office sits right near the legislative office building, the LOB, and the state house. When I'm meeting with some of our members, and our members are a wide rainbow range of colors, but when I'm meeting with some of our members and we go to the legislative office building, we go to the LOB, most of them who are black and brown, and just like black in particular, will enter the LOB and will usually be the only black faces except for the staff and a sprinkle of legislators. And so this is in our neighborhood. Like I said, mm-hmm. it's a block and a half away. If I stand on the roof of the building, I can see the LOB and the state house. And we still feel as though we are foreign in this space, even though it's right in our community. So when you talk about structural racism, if it is smack dab in the middle of, if the Capitol and the office building, legislative office building is smack dab in the middle of Hartford, smack dab in the middle of Frog Hollow. Why aren't there black or brown faces? What is keeping us away from this institution? Why can't we feel as though we're at home in this space when we go in there and all eyes are immediately on us, whether it's us walking through the LLB or whether it's us just sitting in the cafeteria? So what, what do you think the, the issue is? Well, why aren't there more black people working in that space why aren't there more black brown people working in that space it's not because our folks aren't qualified maybe it's because their applications are just tossed to the wayside maybe it's because they are not even able to enter those institutions you ask folks how how many of them have been to the state house or the lob and Their answer is, oh, I have never been there. I don't even feel comfortable in that building. So there could be a myriad of factors why folks aren't in there. And I absolutely believe that because of structural racism, that's keeping some of our people out of these institutions, even if they're in our own backyards.
0: So um, uh, are there political challenges where structural racism is concerned in the political realm, meaning uh, how does one use politics to minimize or? Eliminate structural racism, I know this might be a, a bit of a tough question, but how do you do that, especially in a day like we're living in today?
1: How do we use politics to eliminate structural racism? Well, I think even politics is an, in, in and of itself has a bit of structural racism that needs to be like dismantled. Mm-hmm. Our political system does. So I, I okay. don't know if, to answer your question, I don't know if that can be completely eliminated through politics, which is why um, I'm so, I might repeat it a lot, but we're really focused on community building and community Mm -hmm. organizing. Um, But to answer maybe some of those questions, I think absolutely changes in policies and procedure and how we do things, um, changes in how the, um, whether it's for a job or the employment sector, how application processes are doled out or how, um, you know, processes like that, or even let's take education, changing some of our education in just the way we teach children, how we teach children, you know, what schools are funded, that can be an avenue to help dismantle structural racism. And that can be changed through politics, whether it's creating mandates that state, okay, schools are no longer going to be funded by taxes of the homeowners in this area, which Mm -hmm. we know that if you're in Hart- like, it doesn't matter if it's Hartford, but like let's just take Hartford because that's where our office is. Mm-hmm. If you already have an area where the median income is $30,000 a year, most people are not homeowners, they're renters, you're not getting as much tax from them. And so therefore, those areas where you see a high concentration of black and brown folks who don't have high incomes, those schools are the neighborhood schools that nobody wants to send their kids to. Or the neighborhood schools that are failing, so then their kids are then bussed out to different communities that could be an avenue that you can change through politics because you can change that policy and procedure um, statewide or even in your specific municipality that you're in. So that is like one avenue. But again, I don't know if politics is the end-all be-all in terms of dismantling structural racism. Well, I don't believe it is. <laughs> I don't believe it's the end-all be-all. And I also still believe that even politics in and of itself has structural racism in it that it needs to be dismantled. So
0: don't you think in terms of politics... People could vote in politicians, whether they're white or black, who are looking at their interests in terms of trying to eliminate or minimize structural racism. You could say, OK, this politician, this is what he's doing and this is what she's doing, whether she's black or white. Do you think voting and, and and voting for politicians who will do it, do you think that could be an answer as well?
1: That could be an answer, however voting won't be enough. And this is where, like, politics needs to be dismantled because in Connecticut, let's just say Black people, um, African American, Black in particular, we make up 13% of the population. Even if all 13% of us voted, we are still not... And if we all voted for the same candidate and, let's say, no one else voted for that candidate, we still wouldn't make up the majority. Mm -hmm. And then you add things like folks who are undocumented who can't vote or folks who are in the process of immigrating to this country and still caught up in that. Or you add the fact that we don't allow people who are incarcerated to vote. And if we know that in Connecticut, a good portion of people who are incarcerated are black, African-American black in particular, that just reduces the number of people we have available to vote. So I do think that that could be a process. However, even voting, in and of itself, and people tell black people to do this all the time. If black people just voted, we would make the changes. If black people, if more black people just voted, we could make things different. It's like, okay, but how many black people are out there that are banned from vote voting?
0: So, as we talk about voting and incarceration and all that, Bernie Sanders, just recently, political uh, presidential candidate, um, recently said um, that he is thinking about having incarcerate as president you would have incarcerated people vote in elections do you think that would be a good idea
1: i don't even understand why incarcerated people aren't allowed to vote i think that would i think that absolutely needs to happen and bernie sanders comes from vermont and i believe i could be wrong about this so i'll double check this um at a later time but vermont is one of the states that does allow people to vote if not the only state i do believe another state recently did but vermont is one of the states that allows incarcerated people to vote like it baffles me why people who are incarcerated lost the right to vote and how we still um bar people who are formerly incarcerated mm. from voting. I know there was a bill in the legislature right now that would allow um people who are on probation to vote, and that like why do we bar people from voting? It's one of the one of the first things you can do when you turn eighteen you get to vote mm. in America and to bar people who are incarcerated from voting is just. Like blasphemy, in my opinion. So I absolutely believe that we should allow incarcerated people to vote. So you're you're
0: in t- you're in tune with Bernie Sanders, and you think that that's a very good idea, to um, correct to do. Yeah. So I think he's maybe one of maybe the only politician who's running for president who said that recently, and uh, th- that's a, a progressive kind of thinking. So in addition to incarcerated people who are currently incarcerated, he's also talking about people who formally incarcerated, as I said earlier who should who were struck off the, the, the voter's role should be reinstated right. after and, they've served their time.
1: And that's, that's a prime example of structural racism, like to go back to what we're talking about. So you have Black people were finally allowed to vote in, you know, the 60s. All right, we got the right to vote. Mm-hmm. But now we're going to set these things in place that state, oh, well, you're allowed to vote unless you're incarcerated or unless you're formally incarcerated
0: interesting yes and uh, and all across the country they're doing a lot of things to de- disenfranchise black people see it happen in, in georgia recently uh, in that um gubernatorial election so you know it's happening all over the country and um because it's easy that's why you know politics and your your kind of work match you know come together that's why and i wasn't i wasn't joking when i said to you if you have political aspirations because being on the ground, you being on the ground and you see what's going on, you see what's going on and you see the struggles of people. It may force you like a Barack Obama, who was a, a community organizer, to say, you know what, let me go into politics, not for myself, but to assist these needy people and you know that's why i really said that to you earlier you know that you see what's happening you see the struggles of the people and you see the plight because i know you are a stickler you stand up you you fight for justice in your job and i know that so you look and say you know i want to fight for these people
1: i they are intertwined we mm-hmm. especially at Catal, we use the political process as an organizing tool meaning that we work with our members and if there are certain things that you want to accomplish in the legislature like let's use this as a process to organize to build power which is what organizing is all about and i'll just go back to what i said earlier at this point i really want to continue doing this work like you said being on the ground talking to folks who are impacted who especially we talk about the war on drugs whole communities are impacted even if that person was never incarcerated but at this point, my main focus is to keep doing that and supporting smart politicians and supporting smart folks on the ground who really want to change the system from that aspect, being an elected official.
0: So talking about elected officials, do you like, endorse candidates with your job or you, you just talk about broad issues? What do you do in terms of politics and politicians?
1: We don't, enforce, we don't endorse candidates. But we talk about how those candidates are affecting our communities, whether or not it is in a positive or a negative way, a positive or a negative or even in a neutral way. And more so we hold our elected officials accountable. And like, what does that mean? Right. Because I think a lot of times people say hold elected officials accountable. It means if you are an elected official and you're supporting these three things that would really have negative effects on our community, we are going to hold you accountable and, you know, work through Having you stop doing those three things that are harming our community show you by talking to actual people who are impacted and affected by this, even if it means it's an elected official who is doing great things, but they, you know, make a mistake. And it's let's hold you accountable for that or do something that goes in direct opposition to what they ran on their platform for, which once again affects our community members like that's we're not going to allow that.
0: All right. a in the closing stage of the show, uh, what's your point? Right here on WPKN, uh, speaking with uh, Kenyatta Thompson, uh, community organizer with the Cartel Center, and um, I'm Garnet Ankle. So, um, you think what the future looks like in terms of um, reducing or eliminating structural racism? It's a difficult thing. What do you think the future looks like in terms of? working to try and reduce this thing. It might be a difficult task to even reduce it. What do you think?
1: I think the future looks organized. And I say that because we've hit a point in our society when there are so many things happening in our, let's just say our country, where there are so many things happening that we have to organize across movements, across issue areas to really dismantle structural racism. And when I say we've hit a point, I mean... You look at, we'll go back to federal politics right now. You look at who is in the White House and mm-hmm. in that administration. You look at what's happening. In a our racist is community.
0: in the White House. There's no doubt about it. It's no a doubt.
1: racist. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, you look at what's happening in our communities with individuals who are still being, you know, tagged and bagged. You look at how we criminalize people who use drugs. You look at how environmental racism. I mean, well, that is a thing, environmental racism. But you look mm-hmm. at how our environment, like what our trajectory where we are headed in terms of the environmental resources in our world and in our country. And then like we can go even hyper locally and talk about what's happening to the black community, what's happening to LGBT folks, what's happening to black LGBT folks and black trans women like every single day. And that's why all of these things are conflating at a point where we have to shift into an organized unit and really tackle these things. And to answer your specific question about structural racism what that looks like i think in attacking all of these things we can't ignore how structural racism has an impact environmental racism right you look at the term food deserts and i put that in air quotes because deserts are a naturally occurring thing food deserts are not that is a direct result of structural racism and it is an environmental racist issue you look at how not only homophobia you know affects LGBT individuals, but then you look even hyper locally about how Black people who are LGBT are treated. You look at how Black trans women are treated. That is because of structural racism. It has warped and it has changed into this really nefarious thing. And so what I see in the future around dismantling structural racism is that all of us who are in this fight for justice have to be aligned and have to have intersectional issues and not just to use the term intersectional as this funky hashtag that we can put on something but what does it mean to challenge homophobia but then also challenge the structural racism that is in homophobia what does it mean to challenge the criminal justice system and also have to challenge how black folks have been disproportionately affected by this system we have to do that collectively. Yes, and
0: that's why I said, you know, I think politics is the bread and butter of any society. And that's why I spoke about politicians and we need to maybe mobilize politicians and to say, okay, this is the one we're going to vote for or to say, this one is doing this, this one is doing that, but not to say how to vote. I think it's important for an organization like yours to to do that, to talk about, you know, politics, because if we have the right politicians, our country will move towards justice and towards fair play, don't you think?
1: I agree, and I think it's also necessary for community members to be actively involved in that process, not just in the political process of, okay, we're mm-hmm. going to vote, mm-hmm. but moving forward how is how is the work that you're doing on the ground also tied into Paying attention in your community in the politics, and all politics are local. That is as small as the city councilor, which is not a small thing, but it's as local as the city councilor to as national as the president. And we have to all be aligned in that way.
0: Uh, you mentioned homophobia. What, what are your thoughts on, uh, on Buttigieg? The, uh, Pete Buttigieg, Buttigieg, who is one of the presidential candidates in the Democratic ticket on the Democratic side. What do you think? He's a, he's a gay man like a husband, that kind of thing. I have people talking about, oh, you know, we're not going, Democrats, we're not going to be voting for somebody like that. We don't want a man, two men in the White House as husband and husband. What are your thoughts on that? that, that that's like a, that's prejudice, I, I think.
1: It's very prejudiced. and I haven't read too much about him other than the fact that he is gay so I can't speak specifically to him in general but I think that we have to tackle homophobia. Like I said, as a queer and let's just be like quite frank, as a bisexual black woman, that is something near and dear to my heart and we have to absolutely challenge homophobia at every at every um phase of it whether it's oh we're not going to vote which is you know this very like passive homophobia but it's still homophobia because folks are still listening and are affected by that
0: Mm -hmm. and you mentioned food desert does touch a little on food desert they mentioned talk a little about the food desert thing that you spoke of
1: right i so I will also rec- I will also just say bluntly this is not necessarily my area of expertise, um, but it is a a passion of mine to look at how you know justice inter- um, intertwines with other issue areas. But when you look at how our communities have just physically been shaped, and like even black communities, they all kind of look the, look the same. And I I remember re- learning about this in um, an undoing racism training that I had attended. But they all kind of look the same. There aren't many supermarkets. There's a highway nearby. There are broken windows, which, you know, remnants of broken windows policies in the 90s. There are, um, you know, a ton of liquor stores nearby. There are certain businesses that can get their business license, many of them not the Native people who live in that community. So when you look at, again, food deserts aren't the proper term, and I've been told this by some of my um, food justice allies, but you... You can look at these spaces and they don't have the proper nutrients. Their communities aren't, um, like, done in a proper way. And it's just, it's, it's horrific. So, again, I'm not a food justice person. I will leave that to the experts in the room. But food deserts are absolutely something that can be changed. And we choose not to because we look at the people who are living in those communities.
0: Okay, and uh, we kind of ran out of time. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, certainly going to want to have you back on the show uh, sometime in the near future. Kenyatta Thompson of the uh, Qatar Center, the community organizer, thank you for being on the show today.
1: Thank you very much.
0: Uh, this has been What's Your Point with Garnet Ankle. Catch me in a fortnight at nine, and before that at seven for Solidarity. You do skating.